0: Hello, welcome to Pardon the Sound. If you're listening to this, um, I'm recording right now. It is March 28th. We are in the heat of coronavirus quarantining. Um, So that's been fun. I hope your time inside has been lovely like mine has. Currently, I just finished edis- editing this week's episode. This week, um, for the month of May, when this is released, we have Marco DeSantis from the band Sugar Cult. Now, this was probably my favorite interview that I have ever done. When I was a kid, Sugar Cult was my favorite band. I talked to everybody, all my friends, all my non-friends, if they asked me about music, and sometimes they did, because I was the nerd in the corner who just listened to music And that's what I did to get by because I didn't go to parties. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I was kind of an outcast, Um, which I don't know. Let's not romanticize being an outcast. Let's be inclusive, everybody. I don't feel like people weren't inclusive towards me. I think I was a recluse. But meanwhile, what I was doing while being reclusive was I was in my room listening to sugar cult records, thinking about. Being the next Tim Pagnotta or Marco DeSantis or Aaron or Kenny Livingston or Ben Forrest Davis. I wanted to be in a band like that. And I was lucky enough to sit down and discuss via Skype with Marco DeSantis, the lead guitar player of Sugar Cult, his journey with that band and how that all played out. Um, I will be honest, on this episode, the audio gets oh hello Siri. That's what I Alright. That's enough of you, Siri. Anyhow, we'll leave that in. Um, I got to sit down and talk to Marco via Skype, and he is driving his car around in LA talking to me on Skype, and I gotta be honest, the audio gets a little iffy in spots because the internet connection would kind of waver in and out. I did my best to edit it together and make sure that It stays cohesive, stay on board. It's almost like I was sitting in the passenger seat just listening to Marco tell me his story of my favorite band. And it was so cool. And I can't wait for you to hear it. If it's May and you're listening to this, I hope that we're past this quarantine period. I must be honest, it's getting quite difficult to be isolated. I have not had... A conversation with a human in person now we're going on this is two weeks um, but realistically we're doing the right thing um, and yeah I hope if you're listening to this and it's late May that we're past this and we're ready to take on whatever the world brings to us next until then if we are still quarantined I hope you can find some entertainment in this interview I got to do with Marco DeSantis of Sugar call Let's go.
1: I sure, played the Warped Tour like three separate summers so um, yeah but uh yeah it's a trip um the most humble down-to-earth dude ever too like you're like okay he's like the last person in the room that realizes he's Kevin Lyman you know like everybody around him is constantly like yeah he's he's such a like chill guy and it's not like some people have this like chill vibe that's like, you suspect might be some affectation that they've learned to put on to sort of like, win people over. And you can usually smell that coming from a mile away. But he's one of those like, people in the music industry that's like, just genuinely stoked to be doing what he's doing, and probably counts his lucky stars every day that he, you know, I mean, you you won the lottery when you have a, when you have a crazy idea to basically start a, festival tour and it goes for 25 years
0: well that's just what i was gonna say the the absolute patience it had to have taken to keep that for so long
1: oh yeah that that goes beyond patience that's just like stubborn iron will (laughs) where you're just like that's an an oppressive tour you're going through hot you're in hot parking lots all day dusty you know crazy weather conditions and it's just like day after day day after day doing it you know that's gnarly yeah and even just as a band on the tour like when we first started like our first tour ever actually was the warp tour back in 2001 fucking so long ago i can't even believe it anymore like we're a brand new band on the scene and we hadn't even put our first record out yet and we got this lucky break To get on the Warp Tour for like 11 days. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we jumped on it. We're like, okay, our record comes out the end of August. This is Start Static, the one with like bouncing off the walls and all that shit. We've got an offer to do this. 11 days on this summer tour and the Warp Tour starts at the end of June. That'll be a good idea because then we can spread the word about our band and hopefully we'll meet some other bands that'll maybe want to take us on tour. Like we didn't really know what to expect. So we convinced our label to press up a bunch of three song like CD sing- like samplers sure. so we could just have something that pass out to, to kids at the Warp Tour for free. And then we made a bunch of sh- just Sugar Cult stickers. Um, and basically we're like, okay, every day we get to play like a 20-minute set but we're there all day, so let's just, like, anybody else who has a job, let's put in our eight hours, you know? Like, we we'll get a lunch break <laughs> when they fucking serve lunch, and then we'll fucking get a dinner break when they serve dinner. We literally, that was kind of our ethic, you know? At least for me and our singer, we were like, most guys our age have a fucking job for eight hours a day, and we'd like being in a rock band to be our job, so let's let's put in our time here. And so we just, every day, man, we are like hitting the line out front, passing out stickers to the kids, going to other bands' shows and standing on the stage and watching them and then meeting them afterwards and going, yo, you guys were rad, man. My name is Marco. Just meeting other people in other bands, meeting the crew, people's managers, people's you know record label representatives the other staff on the tour the fans waiting in line to get like the guy from afi's autograph like just meeting everybody we could and just making sure like they were aware of our band not in like an oppressive way where we're like forcing our stuff on them but just like hey do you take a cd let me know what you think of it uh if you like it burn this for all your friends you know here's a sticker you know come see us play we play at three o'clock you know and then if people would come see us play we'd you know, go hang out with them at our merch table, just sort of keeping it, the Warped Tour really fosters that kind of an environment where it's a super down to earth. And like, there's not that big of a divide between the bands and the fans and between the big bands and the little bands, you all wait in line, same catering line. It's not like Rancid's in the VIP line. And we're in the like baby band line, you know, it was a very inclusive environment. And it was just, it was fucking amazing. It ended up the 11 days ended up, getting extended and Kevin was like hey man everyone on the tour seems to be happy with you guys and you guys seem to be like um you know uh conducting yourselves in a nice way and the fans seem to be stoked so if it's cool with you guys um you guys can play can join the rest of the tour you know and we'll find somewhere for you to play
0: that's radical at that point had you guys um had you guys you were already signed up with a label and everything at that point, I would assume, or were you guys still going fully independent?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a trip. I mean, just to give you a little backstory, like, okay, so we started our band in the late nineties arguably we we you know you never really know it's kind of like a relationship you're just like I don't remember when we first made it official that we were going to be a thing but it, I'm pretty sure it was 1999 I think Tim Pagnotta and our bass player Aaron and our original drummer Ben had been playing together with each other as early as 98 and then I connected with them but they hadn't really played that many shows they were mostly just like recording and writing songs and then I saw them play like a couple times as a three piece in my hometown in Santa Barbara Barbara. me and tim just hit it off and at the time i was actually been playing bass in a bunch of bands for for a few years some bands that like went on to become pretty big like i played bass in the band the ataris yeah um early on before they like made it big but you know i had been bopping around in bands for a while as a bass player and nothing seemed to happen santa barbara is a pretty i don't know if you've ever been there but our, no. our hometown is a pretty sleepy little kind of beach town like it's a wonderful place to go on vacation but it's kind of a shitty place to be an ambitious artist because the prevalent vibe is kind of like well if you're serious about music you're gonna move 90 miles you know south to LA right 93 miles to be exact and otherwise if you're still kicking around town then you're probably just doing this for a hobby Sure. And um and most people are just kind of chilling. You know, there's not a lot of, like, moving and shaking happening, like, in a big city where there's, like, a vibrant mu- music scene. And Which is weird, because in Santa Barbara, there had been a pretty vibrant mu- music scene um, in the mid-90s. But by the time Sugar Cult came along, it was, you know, there wasn't really... There was, like, maybe one other band in town that was, like, making shit happen. And they were this, like, crazy psychobilly Billy band. Right. It sounded like... The Stray Cats meets Reverend Horton Heat mm-hmm. and The Cramps. And they were a great band, they were called Blazing Haley. They were like a local institution. Like everyone would go see their shows and they were they were sort of the other band that started doing well in our hometown at the time. But, but just to go back, the band had played a couple shows and I'd go see them and I was doing all these different things. And me and the singer Tim really hit it off as friends. We'd sit there talking about music a bunch and just like, you know, just mostly talk about stuff that we thought was lame, you know, like, God, yeah. I wish these bands were, I wish bands would be cooler. And I wish, you know, this band's cool, but I wish they would have a little, little, little more vibe. Um, this band's got a cool look, but I wish they had catchier songs. Like, but basically by the process of elimination, by like looking at all the bands that were around us, we sort of like landed on... Well, why don't we just start a favorite band? Since all the bands we sort of like aren't doing it the way we'd be doing it if we were in control, why don't we just take charge and start our own favorite band? Tim and I started just devising these plans, and he's like, man, it's it's a bummer because I already have a bass player, but like I really want to play in a band with you. And so one day he called me up, he's like, dude, would you ever want to play guitar? And I was like, "You know, yeah, sure, of course. I, I mean, I play guitar a little bit. I, I actually started out on guitar when I was like a kid, and played in like a shitty punk band when i was like 14 on guitar and i'd never played really like i'd never played guitar in a band since i'd played bass in bands for years right? mm-hmm. i thought I was i pretty much identified myself as a bass player
0: how you ended up on guitar because you know watching the back to the disaster and stuff like that pretty regularly so I've always wondered how you found yourself on guitar so it's just kind of interesting that it was out of necessity and it worked
1: well it just kind of was like in order to be in a, like I just really I really hit it off with Tim and and we were just like how do we make this work and back then you know there's this like honor you know like bands become this like weird bands are weird man it's like somewhere between a gang and a family it's a trip because you know rather than like it'd be like, well, maybe I should kick Aaron out and have you be our bass player. It was like, okay, fuck that. We'll just, instead of being a three piece with just Tim playing guitar, why don't we just add you in the into this group and you play guitar? And I was like, fuck yeah, let's do it. You know, for me, it was like, honestly, I had no idea that Sugar Cult was going to become as much of a thing as it became. I had like confided in my girlfriend at the time. I was like, you know, I think I've played in bands for a long time, and for whatever reason, one thing after another, shit just doesn't seem to line up. We get close to a big break, and then nothing happens. We're close, and then, or like we, you know, we have really good songs, but then our singer is fucking lazy and doesn't want to play shows. You know, there's always some reason why the bands didn't work out. And so I was kind of like in this attitude where I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty much done pursuing this. I'm going to just like look into becoming a grown up, whatever that means, you know, yeah. like maybe just go get a fucking normal, just, you know, just looking to just stop pursuing this like sort of rock and roll fantasy of like, you know, you just get to a point in adulthood where you're like, OK, it was cute when I was a kid. And I said I wanted to be a rock star when I grew up. But now it's getting a little bit fucking pathetic. Like, what else is there in life? You know, I'm so tired of being frustrated in bands that don't seem to be going anywhere or, or actualizing their potential. And so honestly, so I was like, unless like the Foo Fighters call me up and be a player and then I'm, I'm good. You know? And so that's about right when I met Tim and we started just hitting it off. And like, when he asked me to play guitar, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. That's kind of interesting. This is kind of fun. Cause it's like, if nothing else, selfishly, at least that's going to be fun for me to play guitar. It's like, if you've ever been in a band and the drummer goes outside to smoke a cigarette and you, like, get on the drum kit and play the drum kit, it's yeah. just fun to, like, walk in someone else's shoes. And I was like, this is going to be so fun for me to get to be the lead guitar player in a band. How fun is that? Like, that'll just be fun. And I just thought we'll play some shows locally and I'll challenge myself to become a better guitar player because I was just, you know, I had some shitty fucking... Secondhand acoustic guitar leaning against my wall That I would fuck around on here and there But I was never really like a guitar player You know Oh, I totally most of the, Like you. I said most of the things I did was as a bassist And then I'd just use a guitar as sort of something To bang around on at home And like maybe come up with song ideas or whatever But I didn't really like have the craft of like Oh man I'm gonna have a pedal board I'm gonna make up guitar parts Like all that shit I pretty much learned While playing in Sugar Cult Crazy to me So once I started playing with those guys, the drummer was a really proficient musician. And um, Ben, you know, he taught me a lot of shit. He's like, here's what a lead guitar player does. I was like, okay, show me. Because I just like banging out on bar chords. And he's like, you should make up cool little uh, repetitive catchy things that are with higher voicings. And I was like, okay, like this is like sort of, but better. And with a delay pedal, and I'd be like, okay, let me go get a delay pedal and then show me how to use this thing. You know, so basically they were like teaching me how to be their guitar player the way they wanted me to be their guitar player. And I think that in a weird way, because I was at a little bit out of my depth mm-hmm. on that instrument, it prevented me from overplaying and from making parts that were like overcomplicated. Sometimes you see a band and it feels like the guitar player is bored. I'm bummed to be playing something kind of simple and catchy. But for me, it was like, I was like, this is awesome. I want to be able to have my guitar slung low, like Joan Jett and Johnny Ramone and be able to drink a beer before I play a show yeah. and rock out on stage at a, crowded loud venue where the fucking where we can barely hear the monitors and yeah. still have it sound good. So like that was kind of like was going through my head. I was like I don't want to make up parts that are so fucking intricate that I have to basically be like a fucking data systems analyst while I'm on stage. I want to <laughs> be able to fucking be a rock and roll guitar player, you know, and and, and have fun, you know. Oh, so yeah. in the end I think that and I mean for people who like my guitar playing it's always, I always think, I always like think they're taking the piss. I always think they're kind of joking. I'm like, my guitar players, my guitar playing's pretty fucking primal. Um, but in the end, I think that's what was, that's what Sugar Cult needed. Yeah. But Sugar Cult needed a little bit of punk rock attitude and a little bit of, um, and guitar parts that were, you know, simple and simple and memorable rather than like super fucking tricky and, and fancy you know
0: all right you're serving songs really it sounds like um you were kind of molded for that part little by little by the people around you and you're just serving the songs and that's generally a lot of people miss
1: that i think so i think a lot of musicians and it's funny because i work with a lot of young musicians now like i like you know do a lot of like you know kind of coaching with other bands and um artist development kind of stuff and one thing you notice is it's like I think it's the way people have grown up now, because most people have grown up alone in their room playing maybe Guitar Hero when they were little and then graduating to a real guitar, maybe having their own like recording software in their room, and it's, music's become a very private endeavor. And then all of a sudden, you're put in a situation where you've got to communicate on stage with a bunch of other musicians. So what happens is four separate individual people in their own little bubble um, stuck together on stage. And it's really hard for them to to get chemistry and to do like what you said so eloquently to serve the song. And that was kind of our one thing. I feel like I mean, we were pretty like we were kind of just a lot of with a lot of sugar was just dumb luck. We were just kind of aiming for something, and then in our failure to achieve it, we would stumble on something else and we and think it was pretty cool. Like mm-hmm. let's try to let's try to make up a song that's that's like Nirvana mixed with. Early Elvis Costello and um, Jimmy World. Uh-huh. And then we would accidentally come up with the songs we came up with. You know, like most of our songs were happy accidents of us trying to emulate something else. And then the glorious failure to do so, you know, to achieve that ended up with something that was original. Um, which I suspect is the, probably the story to most most bands. You know, I think that's what happens to most bands. You're, you're trying to be something that you admire and you fail at it because... Because you're not those exact people and you don't have that exact chemistry. And then you end up stumbling on something that sort of becomes your own secret sauce. It was a trip because I feel like from our time, a band was still bigger than the sum of its parts. It was like you need that synergy and that chemistry of these individuals playing together to sort of conjure up this weird fucking magic that just happens. The way somebody pushes and the other person pulls, or this person's intensity about this, this person's tendency to do that, this person, you know, exercising their restraint not to get too much like this because they know it makes the other person, it irks the other person in the band. There's a lot of like compromise. Give and take. It, a band really is kind of like a relationship. In order to make it work, it's a constant. It's like driving. You have to constantly be like, seeing what's in front of you, checking out the rear view, checking out the side view, mirrors. Um, you know, being aware of something. Some like, you know, what's going on. Like, check engine lights going on. Meanwhile, you're also adjusting. It's not like you just hold your hand on the wheel mm-hmm. exactly the same way. You've got to be kind of adjusting it as you go, and then prepared to swerve if necessary. If some kid runs. Runner- or you know does he even merge uh, you know so it's like it's kind of like that in order to make it work you can't just like put it on autopilot and go you have to constantly have your hands on the wheel and um, pay attention and then hopefully works out you get to where you're trying to go
0: well and you guys I think kind of what you're saying too you guys found that chemistry and you guys played nonstop once he got going because I I imagine it wasn't soon after. That 2001 Warp tour, where you guys were hitting different cities and playing nonstop. Because I remember reading in Alternative Press or whatever it was, all the way back over here, how you guys almost never, you'd tour like 300 out of 365 days a year. And I, you know, maybe have mythologized that over time being such a fan, but, you know, you really had to have found that chemistry doing all that. How quickly did that start happening after? You know the warp Tour that you well,
1: were. Well, to be to be honest, it's like, I mean, you know, so we so we started the band in '99. You know, things got going by 2000. Things were getting pretty good. We were starting to find our kind of find our sea legs as mm-hmm. a local band, and then coming down to LA and playing shows. And then eventually, the word started getting out about us, and some record companies started taking interest. And it was one thing I think we did, I don't know, for better or for worse, was like a lot of the big, giant, major labels were checking us out, and they kept saying, we want to hear more, we want to hear more. But then this smaller label that had really good resources, they had a lot of money, they had a lot of great distribution, they had great infrastructure, they just didn't have any flagship artists, they didn't have any big bands. They were like, we don't need to hear more. We fucking think you guys are ready to make a record right now. Right. And so we kind of just took this like, you know, I think, some of the moves we made as a band might have been, we sort of had this weird like imposter syndrome or like inferiority complex where we're like this is so out of our league, so let's, uh, let's go home with this before it sobers up and realizes <laughs> that, that we don't actually look as handsome as Johnny Depp. You know what I mean? Right. Like, It was one of those situations with our band like, where we were like, I feel like if we don't, if we wait for these big labels to hear more what if we don't write anymore? What if they never make a decision? And what if we sign to them and then they, it takes two years for them to put our record out? We've heard these horror stories before, these big labels, whereas yeah. this label's like ready to go right now. So we just, we kind of went, let's let's get this before we lose this opportunity. We ran with this label called Ultimatum that didn't have momentum, wanted getting some traction and momentum. They were like, in their mind they were like, Okay, this is gonna be the band that's gonna put our label on the map, so let's fucking spare no expense. All systems go full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes, let's fucking go. And they were like, you know, we'll we'll pay for you guys to make a music video, we'll put some money into marketing and advertising, all the shit you hope labels will do. You right. know? And so That ended up being really good for us. Then we started meeting the bands on the tour. Then those bands started like saying, "Hey, you guys should come on tour with us. We're going for out for a a run in the fall." And and, um, the next thing you knew, it was just like it was like chain smoking. Like one tour would lead to another tour. Like go on tour with Real Big Fish and Goldfinger. And from that, you'd run into the guys in Good Charlotte, and they'd be like, "Yo, we're leaving in um, you know, January. You guys should come out with us." And then you'd have their manager, your manager, call their manager and set it up, and then we'd be on tour with them. And then you know another band would hear of you like, hey, we um, unwritten law wants to take you out for a week, and then it was like we basically just were like, okay, we snuck, we feel like we snuck into this party, and we need to like, you know, drink as much free beer <laughs> and eat as much free food as possible before they figure out that we don't have an all-access pass, and they kick us out on the curb. You know, like, we kind of had this, like, that's why I say it's like an imposter syndrome, where you feel like, I can't believe people are taking our little band from Santa Barbara so seriously, and they're, and, like, legit bands are asking us to go on tour with them. It really, sincerely, uh, you know, we kind of had this attitude, like, this is a fucking dream, and we're going to wake up. And it's all going to be over. So let's fucking get while the getting's good. And we, we literally, it sounds so fucking um, silly and, and cliche, but like we literally played every show like it was our last. We're like, let's not get smug and self satisfied and be like, yeah, this is where we belong because we've worked so hard and we're such a great band. Um, let's not like sit here and rest on our laurels. Let's literally play every show, you know, like it's the most important night of our life. You know, let's not like, Hold back because we're in Wisconsin and then fucking save ourselves for New York City. It's like, fuck that. Every single time we play, you know, that was the sort of attitude. I, the way I've described it in the past is like, but I imagine it's like to be like a pro um, athlete. You're not going to like hold back just because you need to save your arm for the Super Bowl. Right. You're like, I'm not going to get to the Super Bowl if I fucking save my arm for the Super Bowl. You have to fucking go out there as though. Your life depends on it. And what happens when you have that attitude, this is one of the things I say to like young bands, don't play a bar like you're playing a bar. Play a bar like you're playing a fucking Mad- Madison Square Garden and it's being televised. Because what you project then to the few people that are there watching you, they go, what the fuck are you guys doing here, man? You guys are destined for something bigger. And if you go out and you're the opening band playing on Tuesday night, don't play it like you're the opening band on a Tuesday night. Play it like it's your show. Yeah. And own that show. That energy will somehow communicate to the people in the audience. And, you know, you can't make everybody like you, but you're probably going to win a few people over. And there's even been people where they're like, dude, you guys fucking I never heard of you before. You guys blew the fucking headliner away that I came here to see. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's
1: like the best thing ever. It's like, not that we look at as competition, you know, but it's like. You you feel good that you feel like, man, I showed up for work today. Yeah. If my job is to make people – is to fucking put on a rock show, then first of all, I have the fucking most fun dream job on earth. And second of all, let me fucking show up to work and fucking do my job. Yeah, kick the earth down. It doesn't matter if I'm in a bad mood or if I have a sore throat or if I'm tired because I had too much fun the night before. You show up you know, and you fucking crush as hard as you possibly can. And if you do that night after night after night, like you said, we toured for like fucking as much as we could. We just said we want to tour as much as possible. There's no reason not to be. If we're not touring, then what are we going to be doing? We're going to be sitting at home. But that was kind of a thing in our band. We were like, if we fucking stop, what if this never starts again? Definitely. And um, so we just went as long as we possibly could. And unfortunately, eventually we did kind of come to a... Not like a, we didn't slam the brakes on, but we just kind of ran out of gas and just coasted as long as we could until we finally had to just like sort of leave the car on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, everyone sort of called their own taxis, Ubers and hitchhiked or whatever we had to do. And everyone kind of went on with their, with their lives. But to, to mix metaphors, when people ask me about sugar cult, I, You know, I clarify that we never we never officially broke up, Mm -hmm. but we kind of just eventually broke down.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you guys played again nonstop. And how do you eventually eventually like I know you guys have families now and there has to be I'm sure there's a lot of obligation there, too, that it's probably nice to not have to be out as much as you guys were at this point. I mean, that's rad.
1: It's always one of those careful what you wish for, as <laughs> you might get what you want. Sure. You know, so many of my friends that are still out there touring have also started families, and they're like, "Dude, you're so lucky. You get to like be part of your kids' like regular, you know, existence." And they're like, essentially, like what you and I are doing on Skype. They're FaceTiming and Skyping their families ninety percent of the year, you know, because right. they're always on the road. I'm, you know, definitely glad we're not touring like we did when the beginning because I don't think that lifestyle would would harmonize with any of our current lifestyles now mm-hmm. but to that you know on the other side it's like I do personally I don't know, you know different guys in the band might have different answers but like I personally feel like I love playing live I love traveling um, and I wish there was a way I still remain hopeful like I said we're not officially broken up We've just been kind of on this indefinite hiatus Mm -hmm. for so long now that it sort of feels like we've broken up. But, you know, the music still feels vibrant. It doesn't feel ridiculous. When I listen back to our records, I'm like, wow, these records are good. And I have like, it's been enough time now that I can listen to them with objectivity. You know, you don't listen to a record anymore. You listen to it as though it's just some record that is in your record collection. You know, like, sure. Because it's, you know, even though we're the ones who made those records, those records have become their own. It's like your parents. Your parents don't still look at you like you're their little little boy that they, they taught how to walk and talk and eat. You know, they probably offer a beer. <laughs> you right. I mean? right. Like, you're probably more like the role, you know, you probably, you probably resemble more something like, more like of a friend. And so I think that's what happens with the records you make. At first, they feel like your babies and you really need to nurture them and tour on them and promote them and obsess on every little detail of their upbringing, you know, like, oh, the fucking labels promoting it wrong. Or like, I don't like the fucking ad that they've designed. I don't like the font of the fucking credits. You like obsessed over every little detail, just like you would if you had a baby, cause you want everything to be right, you know? But at a certain point, like, you just kinda of have to go, okay, well I did the most I did the best I could, but now that record's its own thing. And it's really been kind of fun to sort of sit back and watch start static palm trees and power lines and lights out kind of find themselves through the years. And one thing that's very pleasing to me is when I, I run into fans that are like like you, for example, like people that are like thirteen or fourteen or fifteen when they were really into our band and now they're in their early thirties, yep. you know, maybe late twenties, early thirties or you run into people that were in college when they were first into our band and now they're like approaching mid to late thirties. It's just, it's a trip to like reconnect with fans now that they're adults and then have them be like, yo man, your record was like a big part of my life. It was like, I listen to it now and it still sounds good. It's nice to know that, I mean, that's the biggest reward of being in a band is to feel like you are part of the soundtrack to people's lives. Definitely. It's such a trip, too. It's like you never think that when you're making when you're making these songs, you're just kind of like, you know, you're just young and fucking going nuts and trying to be a rock and roll band. don't have the intellectual patience to sit back and be like, "Whoa, this is really going to be this." Because you're always just like, all systems go, like moving ahead. But that's one of the nice things now is to look back, listen to the records, and and feel like, wow, those records, those records have aged well. Like, I, I, you know, anyone who's listening to this, put on, like, put on Palm Trees and Power Lines or, and put on any of our records and listen to it right now, and it's not going to be something that's not going to, you're not going to feel like, oh my God, what was I thinking back then with that silly hairdo that I had? Yeah. And the, the silly clothes that I was wearing. And that was one of our goals as a band, was to, like, make music that didn't have an expiration date. That You know, we really were careful to... As best as possible I and mean, we were influenced by our surroundings and we certainly like liked to listen to all kinds of music we, we didn't like live in some retro bubble where we only like pretended like music ended in 1985 but like at the same time we were very militant about not um, following trends
0: oh my gosh that's and, amazing
1: I mean we were like dude we will not be one of those cookie cutter fucking bands <laughs> that you see in all, alternative press, where you could. We sent it was like um, like paper dolls. We'd like cut out the guy's head from one band and put it on another guy's thing. Like everyone had the same shirt, the same hairstyle, the same <laughs> wash of jeans, the same you know, and and which is fine, you know. It's... But like I'm not dissing any of those bands. A lot of those bands were our friends. I think they just didn't see it at the time they were just so tempted to be like part of this like movement. And we were, like, stoked that we were included in the movement, but we were very, very careful not to get swept away with the temptation to just be like, hey, cool, these uh, these cool kids are accepting me on the playground, so now I'm going to start dressing just like them, adopting Acting all their like opinions, um, and, um, you know, their guitar tones, and their production styles, and their, you know... Uh, song arrangements. So, so if you listen to Sugar cult and you go back, you're gonna you're gonna be like, as an adult, you're gonna go back and listen to it and go, oh shit, okay, I get. It. Because we unfairly lumped us in with a with a lot of bands that, you know, where we came up with a movement of a lot of bands that were happening at a time. But I feel like we were always a little bit misunderstood. Which is again going back to what I said at the beginning of this whole talk, part of that was by design. We were like, we don't want to be easy to place. Right.
0: Well,
1: and that's... so that's probably why we wore fucking leather jackets at the warp tour in Florida. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Whereas any band in their right mind would have fucking borrowed a you know, asked Motion City Soundtrack for a t shirt and cut the sleeves off of it and worn like fucking cut-off shorts on stage but we were like the bands we looked up to from like growing up we just thought like man it's just so cool like, it feels like you've never seen a picture of the clash looking like civilians they always look like these fucking straight up weird artists from another planet and you never saw a picture of the ramones where they didn't all have blue jeans and black leather jackets and sneakers on without their makeup <laughs> yeah, kiss without her makeup, and and so it was. It was like, and you know, and our our like look wasn't that fucking extreme. No, but we had this idea where we're like, we don't want to fit in. We want to stand out. But I think that sooner or later, people start to take notice. They're like, oh yeah, like I mean, it's funny. Like the way we got on the green, we we got to tour with Green Day, and we got on that tour. And once we were on that tour you know, once I got comfortable with the guys, I was going on a walk in, um, I think I was in Vancouver going on a walk to a music store. There was like a guitar shop in Vancouver that Mike Durant, the bass player was telling me about. Yeah, And, and he was like, dude, I'll take you there right now. And so I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going to cruise with this guy. And we were just walking and kind of chit chatting and having coffee. And, um, and at one point I was like, so dude, I don't mean to be like, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like, why did you choose our band to go on this, <laughs> to be the opening band? You know, because yeah. we had been told on the Warp Tour 2004 that summer, we had been told, don't tell anybody this, but you're on the short list. Um, to, like between you guys and two other bands to be the opening band for um, Green Day. They're going out to support this brand new record they're about to put out called American Idiot. And so all summer we were like calling our manager every fucking day. Do we find out yet? Do we find out yet? <laughs> you know, like, did they decide yet? trying to put the good vibes out to the universe like please let us get that that green day tour that'd be so rad i mean our singer
0: tim
1: as you can guess probably by the posters on his fucking wall when he was a kid you know what i mean like so we were all big fans so it was like that would have been for us it was like a dream to to have sugar call open for green day and um Sure enough, we finally got the tour and then I'm on that walk with Mike. so I asked him and he's like, well honestly dude, we liked your you know we liked your songs we liked your records. Um, and then we were like on our tour bus and we just had the TV like on mute and just had it like playing on like fuse or one of those you know yeah. I don't know if MTV or fuse and he's like, and this video came on, and it was our video for the song memory. And he's like, and we were just all like looking at the band. We, we couldn't hear it. And we were like, who's this fucking band? Look how I wish more bands looked like this. This is a fucking cool looking band right here, mm-hmm. dude. Who the fuck is this? And then when they saw that it was us, they were like, Oh my God, we got to take those guys on tour so we can go shopping together. <laughs> like that was literally what finally, because they liked it. Me and Tim were wearing leather jackets.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's video. awesome.
1: Yeah. And then of course, um, you know, of, then of course afterwards I was like, yeah, that's why Green Day started wearing leather jackets because they were basically like we, you know, because they <laughs> liked our memory video. I of course took all credit for that, you know. For the leather jackets. That's why Green Day is a great band because they had Sugar Crawl open for them. Okay, before that they were just pretty pretty good. Now, now,
0: just okay. The night I saw them when Jimmy Eat World opened. No, I'm kidding. They were great. But
1: <laughs> oh, I remember that tour, Jimmy Eat World. It was like them, Jimmy Eat World, and Blink, the Pop Disaster tour.
0: No, uh, it was actually. So you guys opened up for them on the American Idiot tour and I think they did right. you know additional American Idiot shows and I got to right. go to one of those like a year after that and they had Jimmy Eat World out.
1: Oh that's awesome. It
0: it was that's super awesome. awesome and I was like 15 and it was wild. I remember the whole time like because you guys were my band growing up. Oh that's awesome. You guys were my band. So I was sitting there. I was like, "Well, this is awesome. I can't wait to see Green Day." But damn, I was a year late. You know,
1: I don't oh, think. Shit. Well, to be honest, you kind of saw in it. You inadvertently saw Sugar Cult that night because I would say, like, if I had to, like, if you put a gun to my head uh-huh. and I had to describe Sugar Cult to somebody, like somebody in your generation, I would say um, we're somewhere between. We're located, you know, if you want to find the, the GPS um, points, coordinates for to find where Sugar Cult lies, I'd say we're somewhere between Green Day and Jimmy Eat World.
0: Yeah, I would say that's, you know? that's accurate. And, and Jimmy Eat World had a sweet album coming out at the time. I think it was uh, their Futures album. So that was cool. I mean, oh, that was a great one. I, I grew to like that a lot after the show. Um, so that was cool.
1: Is that the one with, like, that um that song, like, that, um... Yeah. And the... Is that takes the, one, my what's the one pain with, uh, away. Takes my pain away. Yeah, yep. that's fucking yep. great. That's such a good song. I would say, like, you know, when we first, first started the band, there was certainly, like, a bigger Nirvana influence. And then I feel like you can hear it in, like, songs like Pretty Girl. Like, Pretty Girl was, like, basically, like, how do we make Nirvana mixed with Elvis Costello? And that was basically came out as pretty girl and then there was also like a big like early foo fighters definitely had an influence on sugar call this one band that never really got as popular as i feel like they should have but was a big part of our dna in the beginning they actually the band that we played our first show ever before I was even in the band, I was in another local band and we were opening up and then Tim and Aaron and Ben in the first version of sugar call ever was their first show ever. And they were the opening up cause this band didn't have an opener on their tour. They just relied on local support. So basically they're like, and by the way, there's no budget. So I was like, uh, where, where can we find two local bands that will play for free that will open for this band? And that band was super drag. Sure. And they had like, Superdrag was fucking great band. Like anyone I know who's in a band loves Superdrag, you know, like yeah. Foo Fighters love Superdrag. Um, Green Day loves Superdrag. Drag. so many people in bands, you know, G- uh, Gerard from My Chemical Romance loves Superdrag. Mm-hmm. Like it's one of those bands that like people in bands love, but the fans or the, the public just didn't really
0: latch on the way they maybe latch
1: on you're right man expected. like they had one big hit on the radio called who sucked out the feeling which was a fucking great song but then they made this record afterwards that was a fucking masterpiece such a good record it was actually produced by um i believe it was produced by i want to say it was produced by rob Cavallo. who produced the Green Day records. If it wasn't produced by Rob Cavallo, then it was produced by Jerry Finn, who produced the Blink-182 records and mixed the Green Day records. But why am I forgetting that right now? Anyway, one of those two guys who just did tons of great shit. Um, You know, there's certain bands like Super Drag, another band where... um, The Muffs called the Muffs was a uh, woman named Kim Shattuck was their lead singer and songwriter. She just died, unfortunately, like this past year. She died from MLS. Mm -hmm. But the Muffs were such a fucking great band. The Muffs were a big reason why Green Day, why anybody even knows who Green Day is, because Green Day was on a small label called Lookout and they were pretty big on Lookout. And then once they um, they started getting looked at by major labels, I think one of the reasons they signed to reprise was because the Muffs. They loved the Muffs, and the Muffs were on reprise. And okay. they worked with the, the person who produced and mixed their record, had already had produced and mixed the Muffs records. And they said to their label, like, only if we can work with those guys, because they love that record. So it's like there's these weird little bands out there that are like – I think that the um, Super Drag might be the reason why Queens of the Stone Age and the Foo Fighters both worked with the producer named Nick Raskulanex, okay. because he had produced, like, two um, – Super drag records that people fucking loved, you know, in the Valley of the Dying Stars. So it's like a lot of that kind of stuff happens where these bands happen and for whatever reason it doesn't work. But out of that, another band gets launched into the stratosphere, you know, it's Which- such a trip. I can geek out on this shit all day long, by the way. Your listeners are probably like, oh, my God, this is the most boring interview ever. Like, is not he going to talk about sugar cult?
0: (laughs) No, no, it's great. This is the influence is just as much as I see what I try to talk about here is I like to talk about, you know, the influence, how it all started and where it ended up. And then the way I usually wrap it up is, you know, what what exactly are you listening to now? And, you know, what? out of your catalog or the songs that you did do with Sugar Cult in this instance, which ones do you think represent it the best? Cause my, my whole goal with this podcast is I want people to listen to music. They wouldn't have otherwise listened to. So this is all great to me. Um, oh, I love and, it. That's cool. It's a fairly new podcast. So I will be honest. Most of my listeners are probably in the Minnesota area. So having That's you cool. out in you know California with a completely different, perspective changes the ball game a little bit because you know super drag i learned about them today reading about you guys trying to do some homework just in case
1: what a trip you know
0: so so now that leads to a situation where i have the ability to hopefully even if it's just for the crop of people i know who are listening to this we'll go check
1: out super drag
0: you know or all right
1: well i mean and that's that's to me that's a big part of um That's such a big part of just music culture. It's kind of like, uh, you know, passing it down to the next group of people as you as you discover new music. I feel like every new band that comes out is basically representing the bands that they grew up on. Mm -hmm. And they become you you sort of become these like ambassadors of rock and roll where you're like, okay, it's 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 more than just our responsibility reaches further than just let's go play Let's go load in our gear and play a show. It's also a little bit of our responsibility to either directly or indirectly educate people um, about the the heritage of rock and roll culture. We were too young to understand Elvis Costello when he first came out, Mm -hmm. but we were curious enough to go back and do this sort of – cultural anthropology that, you know, like digging through used record stores and asking annoying questions to the smug clerk behind the counter. And, you know, eventually you get somebody who's like, okay, dude, so here's the thing. If you like this band, you should really be checking out this shit. And then you like actually check it out and you go, oh man, that's so rad. And you learn about something you wouldn't have known about. And then maybe you're Reading an interview with a band you like, and they start talk, they start talking about something that you weren't aware of, and then you have that curiosity to go, like, oh, I'm gonna go check that out. Or I'm gonna see if somebody would put you know, make me a mix, a mix CD or an iTunes playlist. Or now it's so easy with the way people discover music with streaming, it's so like there's no there's no barrier to entry. Like I could be talking about this stuff, and as I'm talking about it, someone could be like whipping out their phone and just like punching I it in on, on Spotify or whatever and just going, Oh, that's pretty cool. And then making a little playlist. It's just so the way people discover music now, it's, it's just like, I mean, it's pretty incredible that anything you can think of, you can just check out now. You used to have to kind of go to a record store, hope they had it in stock or hope you found it used somewhere. Or hope somebody would make you like a mix, um, a mixtape or a mix CD. You know, it's a blessing and a curse now because like 40,000 songs a day are being uploaded to Spotify right so it's really hard to sort of like sift through everything it can become very um the power is kind of to the people because people will usually tell you the truth whereas if it's if you're relying on the media there's there's always influences like you know who's buying a full page ad in your magazine okay they magically get a Cover story, right? And who's buying a quarter page ad? Okay, well, they get a record review, you know. Who's not buying an ad at all? Well, they're not even in the magazine, so you have to. There's always going to be a little bit of that stuff going on, but with everyday people, it's just like
0: it's a wild west. Hey,
1: this is cool. I want to tell people about it, I want to help blow this up because it's cool, not because I'm attached to it, not because I'm going to get paid because of it, but just because I want to be able to share. I think that's just human nature. I want to believe I might be a. <laughs> Uh, you Optimistic. know a hopeless romantic but <laughs> i want to believe it's human nature to want to share good shit with other people rather than just to keep it all to yourself
0: yeah no and that's that's exactly you know what i'm trying to do with this podcast
1: as far as sugar cult like if someone's listening and they want to like i mean obviously if you've never checked out the band before you should just go listen to like you know listen to the the song's like memory and bouncing off the walls, just to sort of get an idea of like the ones that were like the more popular songs by our band. But I'm I really, really want to invite people to commit to one of the records.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, there each each record has its own own personality. Um, we try not to like be redundant and just like repeat ourselves. We wanted to challenge ourselves to evolve as a band, but not like abandoned who we were. You know, we didn't want to like all of a sudden make some record that was like a reggae record. You know, right. we were still going to like, okay, it, this is a sugar cult, sort of like has its own identity and has its kind of style and its sound. So what we want to do is expand on that rather than just completely abandon it, you know? Right. And so start static is definitely the first record. Yeah. You know, when we were making that record, we were making our first record and we were specific about it. We were sitting there with the producer Matt Wallace, who actually also produced a replacements record. Okay. That's very cool. um band from your your neck of the woods. Yes. And he produced two of the singer of the replacements, Paul Westerberg's solo records, which was a big selling point to, to us because it was like I wanna I wanna, you know, sit in a room with this guy and hear him tell me crazy stories about the replacements and trust me, (laughs) or he told us lots of crazy stories. Those guys were fucking nuts. It was amazing. They did not disappoint, but, uh, great dude. But we made that record and we were like this, this record. Okay. We're going back to 2001. Okay. Mm -hmm. Today people do things differently. It's much more of a playlist singles culture, musically speaking But back then. Um, it was like, our first record came out the same year, I think, that iPods came out. So people hadn't really completely detached from the idea of buying CDs, mm-hmm. you know? So we were still making a record thinking in our mind, okay, this record is going to be a body of work. It's not just like a compilation of singles. It's a, it's a body of work. It's got to have a beginning, middle, and end. It's got to have side one. It's got to have side two. And so we really kind of carefully went about making that first record. Like, this needs to be our handshake with the world. This needs to be our first record, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's why, like, we're like needs to start with something that's really like high energy and emblematic of like our band. And and I feel to this day I feel kind of regretful that we played. Um, that we recorded You're the One, uh, which is the first song off of Start Static, that we recorded it so slow, because, like, against our instincts. Our instincts were to play it much faster. Yeah. But we got convinced in the studio to to play it a little slower, you know? And then I feel like when you listen to the recorded version of it, it's just sort of lacks energy. It's just a little bit, I mean, it's still a good song, but like just kind of lacks the energy. And then, you know, we have like stuck in America and all those other songs. And I think our, our record is our first record. We didn't know what kind of a band we, we were expected to be, which was a real blessing because we were able to just do what we did and not be tempted to like make a pop punk record you know, where it was like, like There's a few songs on there that people might classify as pop-punk, whatever that even means. But like Stuck in America, Bouncing Off the Walls, maybe Daddy's Little Defect. But there's probably more songs on that record that could just be like Alternative Rock, Hate Every Beautiful Day, Lost in You. Like To me, there's nothing about those songs that sound like bands in alternative press you know right so it was just kind of this liberating thing where we just made this we're like let's just make a really good record that's well-rounded has like fast songs slow songs medium tempo songs um dark songs uh lighter songs you know um if you listen all the way through there's this hidden track called underwear yeah with the it's trumpet like, you know one of the earliest recordings it wasn't we didn't even record that for start Static. that was recorded like that song might've even been recorded before I was even in the band. It was like some, like, I don't know if it was like a fucking homework assignment when Tim was going to community college and taking a songwriting class. But the idea was to like write a song, um, like sort of a role playing thing. Like, so he was basically writing a song as though he was like this, like psychopath, you know, Yeah. (laughs) like lusting over some prey that he was, you know, he was like some psychopath predator, you know, uh, obsessing over some, you know, victim, you know? Yeah. And it has, like, fucking people from the music department at the city college he was going to playing, like, horns on it. And, like, I mean, it's it's a fucking trip. That song is so out of character with what people would believe is, like, the sound of Sugar Cult, you know? Yeah. Um, definitely. So I like that it's on there because it just sort of demonstrates a little bit of range. I guess, long story short, we just tried to make each of our records really sort of be this well-rounded experience that would be a good listen from beginning to end so if if you want to snack on a couple singles a la carte that's cool but what I'd prefer someone to do is like go on a long walk with your headphones on or go on a drive and just listen to the whole record because we like literally came like within inches of having full-on like fist fights over the sequence of our records I mean, just over the min- the minute details Of which song comes after which song Fucking emails Back and forth Yelling matches Like <laughs> Ripping your jacket off And getting in someone's face Telling them they were a Fucking idiot Because they thought that You know, like We're so passionate about our, our opinions About which How those records should be sequenced yeah. So Try to listen to those records And appreciate that like This song comes before this song Because it's supposed to and we tried it every other fucking way and it's like a puzzle and you go yes we got it we nailed it <laughs> you know yep finally um but I'll tell you one thing the record that I feel the the one that I sort of of, our, of all of our records the one that I feel sorry for <laughs> is probably lights out <laughs> oh,
0: I because love I feel, that feel like
1: it's the least appreciated It's the least commercially successful, but I think it's our fucking best record.
0: Dude, I will just tell you right now, I have been pushing your band on people for years, unapologetically. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yep, You're welcome. I don't have that far of a reach, but um, I'm trying. But all of my friends that I push Sugar Call on come back and they're like, damn, Lights Out is a jam. And I was like, I've been telling you? and now you know (laughs) and uh you know everybody i talk to that i've you know showed your band to they love lights out and it's
1: that's awesome that's good to hear
0: i love i love those records because like you said i mean it sounds kind of like it organically happened where start static you weren't sure what you wanted to be and it just kind of happened and then palm trees and power lines is the one that i found first um And then lights out, they're all so unique and individual and they fit in their own lane, but they all fit together and it's cohesive and it feels good. And the songs, song by song, like when I started writing songs and making punk rock music or alternative rock, what I tried to do so hard, in part because of albums like Start Static, I was like, well, I want to make four songs, five songs, but I want them to all stand alone while being together in a nice way as a whole unit because there are bands out there where they'll write 10 songs and it's you know actually about four different ideas just molded a different way throughout where your guys's records from song to song they were so unique and calculated in my mind at least where by themselves you didn't listen to one and then listen to the next and say, "Hey, well, they have a formula." It was just, "This is a new song, and it's on this album, and this album has that vibe." That's kind of how I always
1: took well, it. That, well, that's really awesome, man. I mean, you know, there's only so much of a. Uh, there can only be so much of a method to the madness. You know, there's yeah. There's a certain amount of just like, like I said, it's 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 a weird, it's a weird kind of chemical. Uh of like just happy accidents and like, um, push and pull. And that just results in, in what you end up hearing, you know, where it's like, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the key things to achieve that for us. And again, I didn't think of this while we were, it wasn't by design, but in retrospect, you can look back and go, Oh, maybe, I mean, we used to be kind of actually kind of annoyed internally. We'd be like, God, everybody in this band. And like, if you put each each guy in this band in a separate room and said, write down your, you know, five favorite records or five favorite things about music, you know, it would like, we'd all come up with completely different things. And some of them might even be mutually exclusive. Like, you know, what you absolutely love, what you absolutely hate. And one of the things I absolutely love would be exactly what our bass player absolutely hates. Right. And one of the things our singer fucking like like is this like hardline absolute has to be this or it's never going to work is exactly what our drummer would put down as the opposite. So so we weren't like four guys. I think that was one of the blessings in our band that came from being from a small town is we didn't we weren't spoiled for choice. It wasn't like you could find four. Couldn't find your echo uh, chamber. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't find your echo such a good way of putting it you couldn't find like your fucking convenient echo chamber you had to sort of like make do with what was available and like you know and so what happens then is you get like people from instead of just like you see those ads that are like pop punk band forming yeah you know influences some 41 newfound glory and blink 182 you know and then you get like 10 people showing up to try out and they're all wearing like Atticus shorts and a, (laughs) you know, simple plan t-shirt. We didn't have that. We were like four completely different individuals. Me and our singer hit it off aesthetically. Me and Tim really hit it off aesthetically and his friends and with our, like sort of like our worldview and some certain like little, little things about music. But at the same time, me and Tim also couldn't be like, we're not peas in a pod. We're not like, we we complement each other and harmonize with each other, but we're both completely different notes. Right. Lots of the shit that I love makes Tim's skin crawl, you know, and <laughs> lots of the stuff Tim loves, I would never even want to talk about in an interview because I'd be too embarrassed. Right. You know? Because it's just like embarrassing that the lead singer of our band likes something that I think is so lame. You know? <laughs> so like as much as we found like this common denominator on like a lot of of important things the sort of pillars of our band we were also completely different people and the same thing with aaron and ben and then kenny and i think that we didn't just find the things we had in common and and run with those things what we did was we used that tension and the the sort of like interesting energy that is formed between the things that you don't have in common and we actually capitalized on that And that's what you that's what created something that makes it harder to just put your finger on with our band, I think. Palm trees and power lines, you know, start static, the classic first record, you know, handshake with the world. Here's all the shit we're probably think we can do, but at the same time we've never really made a record before. So as soon as Start Static was over, we're like, oh shit. Now now we know what we need to do when we go back to the studio again. Cause we you know, if we get another chance to make a record, there's so many things we're gonna do differently. And that's what you get Trees and power lines of course that record went on the road like you said for like three years straight Yep. so a lot of the songs are have that kind of theme lights out it was a different thing it's like holy shit, this band has gone way further than any of us ever thought this seems like you know the last record was more successful than the first record now now what <laughs> you know yeah this is the record where we don't have to make any apologies we don't have to hold back we trust our instincts um, we can like, you know, so there's a little bit more like vulnerability and kiss and vinegar in lights out. Like Tim was kind of coming to terms with the other two records had, had been like almost like breakup relationships slash breakup records. Sure. And lights out was like, fuck it. I'm in a rock and roll band and I have multiple one night stands <laughs> yep. every night all over the world. And yeah. it's fucking awesome. Well, I think it's awesome. Well, actually, it's actually really not a replacement for love. Actually, this is terrible. Actually, every time I have a one-night stand, it's basically a mirror in front of my face showing me my reflection that I'm a fucking hollow, sad person (laughs) with issues that has to deal with shit. Holy fuck. You know, by the end of the song, he's like, by the end of the record, it's like that song Hiatus where he's like, I I can't remember exactly the lyrics, but he's like, I can't, I can't live like this forever. Like something like that, where he's just like coming to the realization, like what you think is this amazing rock and roll fantasy of like endless supply of, you know, one night stands and hot chicks is actually, you know, it's it's not all it's cracked up to be (laughs) kind of, it's, 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 it's a form of it's a it's a drug. It's like a drug addiction. It's like something that's supposed to be a good time once in a while becomes your coping you know, becomes your coping mechanism. Wow. Yeah, and that was kind of there was a theme in lights out there was sort of like loveless sex combined with we've been in this industry now for a while and there's certain things about the music industry that were really frustrating us.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: there's certain like songs like dead living out of phase, like certain songs where you're just like, kind of like being a little bit like not being afraid to, to vent and be pissed. It's like starts at, kind of like 13, 14 year old, mm-hmm. 15 year olds, palm trees and power lines is like, Maybe 15, 16, 17, lights out as, like, 18, going off to college. i have to turn back at your parents and be like,
2: fuck you! you know, it's, like,
1: <laughs> it's way more of, like, the kid, the, the bratty little kid grows up and doesn't, you know. So I feel like each record's had its own little, like, space in the lineage. And that's why it brings us to today, where I remain ever help hopeful that we will... I don't feel like I don't feel like the saga is over. I feel like there's another record that needs to be made, and mm-hmm. I'm really hoping that we get to make it because it's one of those things where it's like it's like Star Wars or something. We're like, I want to know how fucking what happens, you know? Like, um, I, so I've always felt that way too. There needs to be. I feel like yeah. I feel like there needs. To, I feel like there's another record because it would be fascinating to. To have a band that lots of people are now adults that grew up on and have see where that – and we've all stayed active in music. You know, Our singers actually – Tim's become a huge producer, um, You know, produced a couple of songs on the last Blink-182 record. He produced uh, Walk the Moon, Deon Trees. Uh, right now he's in the studio doing a um, great new band called I, I Don't Know How But They Found Me, which yeah. is um, this guy Dallin Weeks with this guy, Ryan Seaman, who played in other bands. Down was in Panic at the Disco and the Brobecks. Ryan was in Falling in Reverse and a bunch of other bands. So he's making their record. He's, you know, Aaron's, Aaron's like always making weird music. He's a composer and a, and a producer. Um, Kenny hasn't really been playing music much, but I still heavily involved with music. So I feel like it'd be just a curiosity. Like, You know, one of these days when when and if anyone's schedules ever slow down enough, because, you know, Tim also has, you know, a young kid and I've got two kids. Our drummer has two kids. Um, You know, I'd be really curious to see what kind of record we can make to make that like grown up, grown up, you know, like Sugar Cult 10 years later. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of record. I'm just so curious to see what that one. um, Even if we just made it for ourselves and just gave it to our friends and didn't even put it out. You know, I'm just curious to see what would happen. You know, because we're all still friends. We all still hang out every once in a while. And, you know, so it's not like there was ever this big, like dramatic fucking blowout, you know, or declaration that it was over. It's just kind of like everyone just started doing other things. And then Tim became so successful doing what he does. And he's, you know, To his credit, and probably largely, um, our success as a band was probably largely in part due to this. About Tim is he's never been guided, ever, by money, um, by like what makes sense financially or as a business. Like I can tell him, like, look, there's a lot of money to be made right now if we, um, because there's a whole revival of our style of music and we can get big guarantees to play Riot Fest and blah blah blah. And that's just going to go right over his head. He doesn't care about stuff like that. He cares about what he cares about. You know, he cares about what he's excited and obsessed with. And the whole time we were active as a band, he was absolutely 100% obsessed with, you know, the band and becoming a, you know, being the lead singer of a band and, and making great records. And that was like his number one goal in life. And it was like he woke up. I mean, he came to my fucking wedding. And was in the wedding party and went to the reception and hung out three hours away from LA. Mm-hmm. And when everyone was going home to their hotels, I was like, "Dude, where are you going?" He's like, "Oh, I'm actually going to get my car and drive to uh, back home to LA because uh, the producer sent me some mixes and I want to listen to them." Yeah. <laughs> he like, you know, at fucking two in the morning drives back to LA to fire up to go to the studio and put up mixes of, of our record, nothing was going to stop him. You know, and that we got to come kind of come along for the ride because he had that ethic, that sort of like diehard work ethic. This is what I want. And there's nothing's going to stand in my way. And I don't care how hard I have to work or what I, how heavy something is that I have to lift to get it sometimes. So, so right now he's that way about being a producer. He is just a hundred percent and you can hear it in his records, you know, yep. you hear the records he produces. You're like, he is, he's working 90 hours a week. 12 hours a day and it's still, he's not satisfied. Like he still wishes he could do more. Like he's like, when he works on a record, it's like people in the bands that he's recording are like, dude, you should go home and have dinner with your wife. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I know, but let's just do one more take. You know, like he is such a hardworking, dedicated dude that, uh, you know, so I just kind of have to sit there as his friend and be supportive and be like, dude, when you're done making hit records for other people um maybe could we make a record yeah <laughs> and hope that one day he's in the right mood i feel like there's another record after lights out like there's either the wake up in the morning record or there's that like you know we'll see we'll see i'm talking. you the more i'm talking to you about it the more i'm like i gotta get off the phone with this guy and call tim right now <laughs> like <laughs> all the inspirations well, you know happening
0: that's perfect i hope you do
1: like we're probably gonna re-release our old shit that we put out. I don't know if anyone ever heard. We we had this collection of demos called Wrap Me Up in Plastic. Yes. That we'd only ever pressed up like 2,000 copies of. And people look look for them on the internet and find them for like a lot of money. So I just look at it like I kind of want to re-release that maybe as like a limited edition vinyl or put it on Spotify or something just because for a long time we didn't really want people to hear it because it was kind of like our embarrassing baby pictures. Yeah. Nice. but at this point, so much time has gone by that we're just like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's let people listen to that shit. It's part of how we became what we were. And why should we, like, deprive people of, you know, the, of the chance to listen to, to it if they want to hear it? Have you heard those
0: songs? Oh, yeah. I've found them. The Yeah. I That's cool. Somehow, I dug, them, I dug through the snow and found them from forever away. <laughs> that's cool. But... Those songs are cool, and it's... For me, as a, a young songwriter and everything who really liked your band, it was cool to, uh, you know, hear that progression.
1: Um, that's cool.
0: It was cool to hear, like, you know, the most early demos that I could find available, at least, and then compare it to what ended up happening. I think that's always cool for yeah. musicians, too.
1: Well, I mean, going along with the sort of sort of like theme of your podcast. I think that's like one of the one of the biggest joys of being a music fan is is doing that that reverse engineering, that sort of dig where you're like, oh man, I love uh, maybe someone's like, Oh, I love the, I love Rancid. Okay, everyone says Rancid sounds like the clash. And then that leads you to listening to the Clash. And maybe you listen to maybe all you thought the clash ever were was rock the Casbah and should I stay or should I go? But then you realize, oh my God, London calling, which Neither of those songs are on is a fucking masterpiece, Mm -hmm. and holy shit, I can't believe in context that when the first wave of punk was happening, that a record this fucking diverse and like well-rounded could have happened, but maybe been unfairly like lumped in as a punk record because this is a this is an amazing record, and it's like you know, and then maybe that leads you to like okay. Joe Strummer before The Clash was in a band called The 101ers and you listen to them and you go, okay, well, maybe they have like a couple good songs, but uh, you appreciate it because you're listening. could happen so that all the other things that came in the wake of The Clash could happen, including Rancid and then so on and so forth. It's like and then you maybe listen to an interview or read an interview with them and they say that they liked shit in the early 70s, like the Hoople. and You're like the Hoople. What the hell is that? It's that band that sang the song "All the Young Dudes" that David Bowie wrote for them, and then you start learning about that, and then you start reappreciating David Bowie. Then you read that David Bowie loved the Beatles and Bob Dylan, and you go back and listen to the Beatles and Dylan. You can keep tracing it all the way back to like a hundred years ago. Yeah, you know, it's one of the f- fun things about being a music fan is you can either just enjoy it as like cool dude, just checking out some jams, or you can really do a deep dive and get nerdy and like become kind of almost like a history. A historian, you know, and yeah. really get into it. And it's, it's super fun because you never know where it's going to lead you, but it's endless. You know, there's one thing's for sure. You can rest assured knowing, and it's, it's a bittersweet thing to, it's a bit sort of a bitter pill to swallow is, you know, that no matter how long you live, you're still not going to live long enough to listen to everything that's ever been recorded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to live long enough to read every book that's ever been written. You know, and you're probably not gonna live long enough to taste every fucking flavor and every meal that's ever been, you know Yeah. Created in different parts of the world. So you have to at least like go into it knowing well, but I'm gonna die trying. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. You know. As long as I get, I'm gonna keep on fucking being curious and checking out cool shit and along the way I'm gonna flag the things that I that I think are really great and I'll kinda come back to them every once in a while. Like I'll go back to shit I listened to ten years ago and check in with it now mm-hmm. and be like some of it I'm like, Huh, it's not as cool as I remember it and some of it where I'm like, Holy shit, this is even better than I remembered it, you know? Yeah. And that's just kinda how it goes. Definitely. All right, dude. Well, well awesome, I don't wanna man. take up your um your whole Hard drive here.
0: <laughs> oh, it's all good. I appreciate it. This has been awesome for me, and uh, I appreciate all the stories and the. I'm I'm gonna flat out say wisdom. It's a lot of good information and advice too. So I wholeheartedly appreciate that, and I think people can learn from it. Well,
1: thanks, Marco. Right on, dude. And let me know. Uh, let me know when this thing's gonna come out and shoot me a link, and I'll I'll blast on uh, all our social media and stuff. Perfect. Um, if that helps. That would be great. And then, if you wouldn't mind, like, just uh, if anyone's, if, first of all, if anyone's listening to this long, you probably need to, you know, go for a nice long walk in the snow or something. But <laughs> uh, if you are interested in just kind of keeping track of us, you can still, Sugar Cult has uh, our Facebook page. We still don't have our own Instagram. I'm kind of waiting to see if we end up doing another record to, before I get into that. But I have my own Instagram. It's just Marco DeSantis. So, just, you know, M A R K O D E S A N T I S find me on instagram twitter sugar cult marco we have a sugar cult twitter so just you know pretty active on our social media so if you ever have questions for me or uh whatever you just want to reach out you know i'm not that hard to track down definitely perfect cool dude
0: all right well thanks so much
1: it's been great all right dude take care you too
0: bye all right thanks